Hello, and welcome to In Conversation with Sham Devani, where every so often I will engage in a dialogue with experienced market professionals. For our debut edition, I am joined by Vib Bakshi, whose experience in market spans five decades. After trading at Citibank in the mid-1970s, he went on to being in charge of managing major money center bank treasury operations at Chemical Bank and HSBC Midland in Hong Kong and London, running market making and investment activities in securities and derivatives products. His ability to grasp the issues at hand, combined with his talent of foresight, led to major achievements, including correctly expecting the Federal Reserve to abandon their monetary targets under the Volcker Fed, and more impressively, going head-on against the Bank of England in the European crisis of 1992, when the pound sterling crashed out of the ERM as the bank abruptly abandoned the peg. Thanks for joining me. I would like to first draw on your experience and try to put today's market or monetary policy framework in its proper context of time. In many developed countries, the main policy tool has been interest rates, and more recently, and amazingly, I would say, asset purchases by central banks. When you started your career in markets, it wasn't like that, was it? The environment was different, the framework was different, and some of the tools were also different. Could you talk me through this journey, and also tell me what your thoughts are with respect to today's monetary policies in general? Hi, Sham. It's good to talk to you. I... uh... Yes, you're right. The, the time when I started my trading career was in the mid-70s. And at that time, uh, or pretty soon after that, Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. The U.S. had been going through a pretty inflationary period. And money supply was the thing by which everything was run. I mean, weekly money supply statistics used to have significant impact on interest rate changes on a very, very short-term basis to the extent that U.S. interest rates, as you might remember, shot up to in the 20 percent. 21, 22% and came down to about 10, went back up to 15, 16% before finally sliding down. And, and, and they were religiously following the M1, particularly the M1, and to some extent the broad money supply M2. And then, of course, this impacted the monetary policies of other central banks. And, uh, and, and you know, and after that, we, we, got, we got a period where people like Reagan and Thatcher came into play and this whole concept of monetarism got embedded in the political infrastructure of these country, of our countries. As a result of which, uh, this it became more of a dogmatic ethos about managing interest, managing not so much interest, but managing money supply. And with the result that you had significant impact on, on the competitiveness of, of manufacturing sectors in these countries because of the currencies going way up because of high interest rates. Uh, I mean, in UK, you could almost argue that the, the monetary policies of Margaret Thatcher, while it nipped the inflation, that was a problem. It, it almost destroyed our manufacturing competitiveness, and as a result of which, it began to slide down away from manufacturing and becoming much more concentrated on the financial market side. In the US, it was not as dramatic as that, but nevertheless, there was an impact. So money supply was a big, big uh, deal at that time. Uh, since then, we've been through recessions, we've been through financial crises, and at that point, when uh, things have become really, really tough, interest rates have been relatively relatively low and inflation relatively contained, um, there has been an ability to actually dramatically shift policy away from money supply to interest rates and to pr- push money to the system 
to stop the economy sliding down further. It's actually happened in the in the in the you know the financial meltdown, but even in some of the earlier crises where the money supply was ignored. And I think today we are at a point the money supply is not as important. What what is also not remembered is that it is never only just the money supply. It's the velocity of money that has been the main crux. And and in your in the days when Volcker and people were managing the, the monetary policy, it was the velocity was a big problem. Money was changing hands very rapidly, and that was causing inflation. In the in the recent period, velocity has come way down. And, and in fact, because the velocity is so poor, they've had to throw a lot of money and ignore the money supply growth because they needed money supply to grow just because of to offset the fact that there was lack of, of velocity. And and I think what you're finding current period is the central banks forced to actually just add liquidity by whichever means they can in a combination of tools they have used uh, in ignoring money supply. And to be honest with you, I think they're right to do that because currently the crisis is such that you really need to protect economies, to protect jobs, uh, and not worry at this stage about inflation or the potential inflation and, uh, and, and money supply situation. Because if you don't protect the jobs, uh, if, you, if the businesses go under, in the end, the governments will end up having to bear a very, very hefty social security unemployment benefits bill. And, and, and also because businesses will go underwater, uh, there will be a massive decline in tax revenues to the government. So in order to protect all this, this is only way they can do that. And so that's where we are. Well, obviously, that explains the major bull market in bonds that we've seen for decades. And with interest rates being where they are and this massive increase in money supply, you've got gold trading at all time highs, depending on which currency you're going to measure it against and nearly at all time highs against the dollar. I suppose the next question is, what can they do, if anything, about the velocity of money? Can they get that to pick up in the aftermath of this COVID-19? Well, you know, the thing is, uh, two other things happen. Uh, before I come to that, uh, the, the thing to bear in mind is that, uh, you know, people are not spending money. In that case, the velocity doesn't matter. And uh, how do you get them to spend money? And the second factor that completely changed, I mean, this, this, this monetary policy has caused a lot of asset distortions and imbalances. Let's face it, an asset bubbles are created. But over and above that, you have a situation where, uh, you know, the globalization and the arrival of China and some of the developing country, uh, countries providing cheap labor and significantly bringing down the cost of uh, manufactured goods has changed the dynamic completely. So not only has it affected the inflation fears because of those have not been borne out because of the ability for the developing countries to take the price cuts, uh, but also it has created an ability to it's affected the manufacturing base. The unemployment levels, although in UK are recently very low, historically, we went after the financial crisis to very high levels of unemployment. And what took time to come down was partly because of globalization. And this resulted in the backlash that you've seen in countries in the West, particularly in the UK and US, uh, which led to things like Brexit and, you could argue, election of Trump. So all these things have had implications in political and social terms. How... Yeah get the velocity to go up and how do you get people to start spending money at a faster rate? Uh, I think I think in the present environment it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, I think if anything this particular crisis that we are going through with this COVID-19 is going to make people perhaps much more careful 
uh, not being sure about the future outlook for the jobs or employment and prospects and so on. So I think people may, may become a little bit more stymied in their consumption habits. And if particularly the tariff war builds up particularly in the US uh, and therefore the imported, cheap imported goods are become more expensive, then that will be another disincentive for people to buy as much as they would do in the past. So I think, I think in the near term, you may not see any significant shift in the velocity. Now you mentioned something important there, distortions and imbalances. Now you have sailed through many choppy waters when it comes to markets in your time, whether we're talking about currencies in the Middle East, changes in monetary policy frameworks, dealing with inflation or stagflation, the ERM crisis in the 90s, or more recently, the subprime crisis and the European sovereign debt crisis, both of which I remember very well. In each case, there is ultimately a realignment of market prices or policies with the path countries and economies are taking or are destined for. Do you think there are any serious misalignments today? Well, you know, last you know, since the, 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 you know, the austerity in the UK and the, and the meltdown generally in the, in the West, there has been a problem because interest rates have become so almost nil that uh, there have been no returns for people. So they have had to seek returns wherever they could. Uh, and, and, and that's led to, to results in, in bubbles. And if those bubbles cannot be sustained by economic uh, performance, uh, you know, the, the ability to generate earnings, for example, if it's in stock market, uh, then that causes eventually some, some correction and problems. And I think that uh, we've seen some massive in, in increase in earnings in the tech sector, in particular in the US, and that's kind of sustained this bubble. If anything, it's fed it, uh, and it continues to feed it, but at what point if that stops or we, or we kick into the next paradigm of technological uh, uh, advancement and you know, the 5G technology and whatever else goes with it, it could go on feeding it for a while, because clearly there is also uh, major behavioral change. I mean, people are not so much buying in stores and in shops, but they're buying online. Uh, the technology is changing and creating new kinds of consumption products and patterns. So at the moment, I think things look look like they're going to continue for a while. This, and unless the central banks were to come in and stop the bubbles from going further, you will get this, you know, bubbles in certain sectors continuing. Uh, property market generally has been one of the best area for investment for ever, I suppose, and whether that continues will remain to be seen. But I think if there are measures taken like STEM duty in UK to, to, to you know, disincentivize foreign investors, they will provide some buffer for stock uh, for property markets from going too high. But in essence, the bubbles are there in property sector in, in, and in, in stock markets. The commodities have not been as, as much of a bubble-prone area in the past, apart from gold in recent times. Uh, but I would say in general, stock markets probably are at levels which uh, are topish and uh, they, they seem to have a life of their own and it, because in the absence of any other alternative, people will continue to invest in stock markets. The bond markets do not offer the returns uh, unless you take some serious credit risks and go into junk stuff and a lot of people will not do that. So I think this thing will continue and the misalignment is going to be difficult to cure in the near term. Some central banks are doing that recently. Yes, they are doing that. Or oh, you mean buying junk bonds? Well, close to. Well, yeah, but they're doing that for a different reason. They're doing that purely because they needed to support the businesses that are under pressure. And if the banks are not willing to lend money to, to corporations or businesses that you know you could say are not the top quality credit, then governments are forced into, or central banks are forced uh, into doing that. And I think 
it, it, it is a short-term necessity, which I hope will be eventually reversed. But I think the, the essence of the central bank responsibility and function in a crisis like this is to preserve businesses. It's crucial that businesses don't disappear to the point where you lose so many jobs and become, recovery becomes very difficult and you are handed with a large amount of unemployment to deal with and that will create social and economic tensions within any society. Yes, indeed. Now, let me ask you, what aspect of this COVID-19 crisis has surprised you the most in the marketplace? And what do you think is revealed? Well, I think the ability of the stock market, having initially dramatically collapsed, to come back almost 50%, it's quite surprised me, I must say. Because to be honest with you, whilst it could be argued that the, the, the reversal was of it, the downside was just too severe and too quick, uh, the reality is we don't know at this stage how badly the economy is going to suffer. I mean, we are at the moment talking about a severe recession or a, a depression. Nobody's talking about a light recession uh, or even you know a very, very short-term blip. If that happens in this stock market uh, recovery, uh, seems to me a little bit optimistic, but, you know, <laughs> I've been proven wrong many times before, and you can never underestimate the market's uh, desire to, 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 to look for opportunities and to earn dividends or uh, higher returns. So they may well go back into stock markets. But, um, and, and, you know, it, it depends on how much damage has been dealt, and the longer the lockdowns go on, the more difficult it becomes to recover fast enough. So whether the stock market would need to take a step back and measure, I don't know. So that's been one thing. Secondly, I think what has surprised me about the COVID-19 thing is the dramatic impact it's had on virtually every country in the world on a widespread basis, except for China. Uh, I mean, there are conspiracy theories and there's a lot of other things going on. I have no, no idea what to believe. But it seems amazing that China has contained uh, the spread of that, uh, the virus uh, so dramatically in a very short, uh, small area. And you could argue that it's because they are such an authoritarian state that they can completely block them, you know, put people into effectively a prison and not let them move out of that. And that's probably what it would most likely explain the, the reason. But it is quite dramatic the, the way that China has been, the, the whole thing has been so contained. And now it seems the economy is beginning to turn around so relatively quickly. Some people would say this is an, an Asian thing, not just China. Many Asian countries uh, are doing relatively well. I mean, South Korea never went on lockdown. Uh, Taiwan's doing okay. Singapore, where I am, yeah, we've got lockdown, but the situation here is certainly not as bad as uh, in, in many other parts of the world. Hong Kong uh, is only on partial lockdown. New Zealand's opened up again. Uh, Australia is beginning to open up again. That leaves, you know, two other major nations. You've got India and Indonesia. Indonesia was late in reporting. I'm not really sure how accurate their numbers are. India, perhaps a work in progress. Uh, perhaps what's happened is that the memory of SARS is fresh uh, in the minds, and Asia is learning from its experiences. No, that, there is no doubt that that's the case. But, I mean, when you look at India, the, the, the spread of the virus is not contained in one part of the country, like in China. That, to me, is a very, very weird thing. And I think that can only be explained uh, by either a combination of or otherwise a conspiracy theory, but I don't think that's necessarily that's, you know, substantial. But more likely it's because they have been able to absolutely pretty much make sure that nobody stepped out of the area and contained it in one finite part of China mainly. Okay. Now, I cannot speak to you and not ask about the UK because dealing in sterling in the 1990s when... The, the UK crashed out of the ERM. 
you know, was one of your great adventures in markets. Also, you live in London. Uh, I'm from the UK. Uh, it seems to me that the UK is least prepared for the troubles ahead, as it's leaving the European Union and wants to start stri- strike trade deals with other countries at a time when global trade is going down. It was going down before this COVID-19. Any comments on the UK from you? Well, I, I, you, you, you put all the right points across about the situation facing the UK. I think UK, to start with, uh, the reaction to the COVID-19 was a little bit uh, typical British exceptionalism in the sense that, you know, it's, it's okay, it can be in Italy, it's Spain, but we are going to be all right. Uh, we are an island, nothing can happen here. And then, of course, we did not contain it. We did not check border people arriving at the airports. We did not have tests in, in place. We didn't have the PPE in place. And quite frankly, you know, we had Cheltenham going on, soccer matches going on until rather late in the day. And the government, of course, having initially gone for the herd immunity kind of an approach, changing and panicking because the National Health Service would have been completely drowned. So that that has actually resulted in, I think, us having probably the highest number of deaths eventually in Europe uh, and, and next only to the United States. Uh, and, and, and the damage of that is yet to be fully registered. But apart from that, I think that the government's fiscal situation is going to be very dire. Now, I think they've taken the steps that needed to be taken, so I don't criticize them for that. I think the supporting uh, furlough process, supporting businesses where needed, uh, making all the possible allowances to, to carry this economy through this difficult period is absolutely correct. I think that we did not move fast enough and early enough uh, on the, the COVID thing, which could have actually contained the situation much more and would have caused less pressure on government finances. But anyway, we are where we are. Overall, the process is now looks like beginning to bear dividends and uh, we will eventually sort ourselves out. But I think the problem is that the economy was already showing signs of weakness before this COVID-19 thing hit us. And, and, and the impact of Brexit has not even yet started. So I think that there are many problems ahead. And I think the problem on top of that is having government having used up so much of its ammunition uh, in defending the economy against the virus uh, will not have ma- much ammunition left in its, in its uh, cupboard to, to try to deal with any future economic crisis. So I think that that's why I remain a little bit pessimistic. So, I, um, you know, it will require a great deal of luck and great deal of astuteness in managing the economy to, to get us out of this thing and, and to deal with the Brexit outcome. Because the fact is there will be a more... Uh, nationalism in people's trade policies or, or protectionism, I should say, in the trade policies going forward. And so I think UK is going to find it much more difficult to make deals. I mean, particularly, uh, you know, how, how it deals with China is going to affect its deal with China. United States is going to be in a different ball game. I think, and, and of course, we don't know what the outcome of the election in the US is going to be. So I think we do face a period of definite problems ahead. And uh, I, I think that it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. Vib, thanks very much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you.